So who would have expected that this would be our second Palm Sunday in a row where we'd be worshiping online? But here we are. We're all here, wherever you happen to be. And we're going to hear a very familiar story from the Gospel of Luke. Interestingly enough, this is the only version of the Palm Sunday story that we have in any of the Gospels, Luke's version, where it doesn't say anything at all about palms, which kind of reminds me of what these past 12 months have been like for most of us. You know, a whole lot has been familiar, but something's missing too. So let's listen now for God's word to us today from the 19th chapter of the Gospel of Luke. After he had said this, Jesus, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And when he had come near Bethphage and Bethany at the place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find tied there a colt who has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it here. And then they brought it to Jesus, and after throwing their cloaks onto the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, people kept spreading their cloaks on the road. And as he was now approaching the path down from the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the deeds of power that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, order your disciples to stop. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the stones would shout out. Well, as you hear, when Jesus rides into Jerusalem, a whole lot of people get really excited. You heard also that some of that the Pharisees and the other powers that be were not so excited. In fact, they were downright uh, peeved and afraid that Jesus was going to cause problems for the peace and security of, of Jerusalem. But he comes in and most of the people, as I said, are excited because they see him as possibly something or somebody who is going to be the Messiah, going to be a great power, a a conquering hero, somebody who's going to be the son of God to, to get rid of the oppression and save them from the Roman Empire. Well, they're looking for any familiar or you might say recognizable signs that Jesus is going to fulfill their expectations, that he's going to be the Messiah. But, Something is missing. In fact, a lot of things. For example, right from the start, as you heard, Jesus rides in on a colt, a scrawny little colt, rather than on some majestic stallion. I mean, that's what you would expect a conquering hero to come in on, right? A white horse, a stallion. But then he does a lot of other strange and disturbing things in the days that follow Palm Sunday. He says that the temple is going to be destroyed. That is, what the place that the Jewish people thought was where God Almighty lived. That was his house on earth. Jesus says it's going to be destroyed, 
And then he does his part to get it started. You remember, he goes in and turns over a bunch of tables, causes a ruckus. That's not all he turns over. In fact, it's as if Jesus does everything he can in the last week of his life to turn over every expectation anybody ever had about what a Messiah was supposed to be like. And then there's the biggest expectation of all, that the Messiah, the Son of God, is not supposed to die. So let's pick up the story a few days after Palm Sunday and a few chapters later in Luke. Chapter 23. And then the assembly rose as a body and brought Jesus before Pilate, Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor. They began to accuse him, saying, We found this man perverting our nation, forbidding us to pay taxes to the emperor, and saying that he himself is the Messiah, a king. And then Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? He answered, You say so. Pilate then called together the chief priests, the leaders, and the people. And he said to them, You brought me this man as one who was perverting the people. And here I have examined him in your presence, and and I have not found this man guilty of any of the charges against him. Neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us. Indeed, he has done nothing to deserve death. I will therefore have him flogged and release him. And then they all shouted out together, Away with this fellow! Release Barabbas for us! This was a man who had been put in prison for an insurrection that had taken place in the city and for murder. Pilate, wanting to release Jesus, addressed them again. But they kept shouting, Crucify! Crucify him! A third time, Pilate said to them, Why, what evil has he done? I have found in him no ground for the sentence of death. I will therefore have him flogged and then release him. But they kept urgently demanding with loud shouts that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. So Pilate gave his verdict that their demand should be granted. He released the man they asked for, Barabbas, the one who had been put in prison for insurrection and murder, and he handed Jesus over as they wished. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Holy God, we pray that you'll grant us the eyes to see, the ears to hear, and the hearts and minds to understand your word and your world this day as best we can, in Jesus' name. Amen. So when I was a kid, I imagined Jesus as a kind of a superhero, you know, like Iron Man or, I don't know, maybe Captain Galilee or something like that. He walked on water, you know, he changed the weather, he turned water into wine, he, uh, not once but twice, he, he fed thousands of people with little more than a sack lunch. I mean, that's some impressive stuff. But then as I began to mature as a Christian, I realized that Jesus wasn't like any other superhero or mythological deity I'd ever heard of. And that the miracles 
you know, the ones we read about in the Gospels, the miracles weren't even the most important thing about him. It's his resurrection. And that's how people in the early church thought of it too, the earliest Christians. Because if Jesus had not come back from the dead, there'd be no Christian faith at all. And all of those other miracles we read about would have been for nothing. Now, 2,000 years later, you and I know where the story ends, how it goes. We've heard it before. So we can't help but look at every single detail of Jesus' life and death through the lens of Easter. We're post-Easter people. But to the people living way back then, both before and even for some time after Easter, to them, a lot of what Jesus said and did was just downright crazy, if not scandalous. And to top it off, he was executed in the most ruthless, shameful way that the Romans had, on a cross reserved for murderers and thieves and rebels. And that means that unless you were seriously convinced that the resurrection actually did happen, it would have been nearly impossible for you to believe that God was somehow incarnate in Christ to save the world. The biblical scholar Peter Enns puts it this way, quote, The Christian faith has at its centerpiece a beaten, tortured, and crucified king. But here's the thing. If you wanted to create a religion at any time in history, in human history, this would probably not be your first move. Because who would believe any of it? But people did believe, and still do. And about 20 years after that first Easter, a man named Paul went around the, the Mediterranean world trying to convince people that God's saving power was indeed present in an obscure Jewish rabbi who had been exterminated by the Roman Empire. And the truth is, Paul didn't say anything about any miracles. In fact, it seemed that all he knew or cared about Jesus, Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah, was his resurrection and his very public death that led up to it. So he came up with a totally novel way of thinking about God and sacrifice and salvation, and he tried to explain it all to people who never could have imagined anything could, any such thing could be true. And then Paul writes this in his letter to the Philippians. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. You heard that a few weeks ago in our sermon series from Philippians. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited. He emptied himself taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, honestly, when you think of someone being the embodiment of God on earth, 
the first thing that comes to mind is probably not emptiness or being a slave or humbling yourself to the point of death. None of that sounds like a particularly superpower. In fact, all of those things sound pretty weak, especially for a god. Now, of course, it starts to make some sense after Easter, but that's a story we're going to tell next week. For now, I want to look at how Jesus actually does display a great deal of power on his way to the cross in the last week of his life. Now, the first power might not be surprising. The first power is faithfulness. It's a humble trust and vulnerable obedience to the God that Jesus calls Father. If you remember on the night uh, before his death, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus asks the Father to take this cup away from me. That is, he knows he's about to be executed. He doesn't want to do it. Like any other human being, he doesn't want to die, especially he doesn't want to die in a shameful way all by himself. But in faithfulness, he submits himself to God's will. He gives himself up to the authorities, the Romans and the Jewish ones alike, and he goes to the cross with, I'd imagine, not just a bit of fear and trembling. And when he's nailed up there, people shout out, If you are the Son of God, if you are the King of the Jews, save yourself. And he doesn't do it. Instead, in an act that would seem utterly foolish to Gentiles and disgraceful to Jews, Jesus gives up his own life as a sacrifice to save the rest of us. And then there's a second power, seemingly not so super, that Jesus shows on his way to the cross, actually on the cross. You might imagine that uh, any other self-respecting hero or would-be Messiah would escape death at the last minute, right? You've seen the movies, you've read the comic books, you've read the myths, Greek myths. He would save himself. He'd find some secret reservoir of strength and he'd vanquish his enemies. But not Jesus. With one of his last breaths, he he even says this. He says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. Maybe it's not surprising that those particular words in the Gospel of Luke don't show up in a lot of the earliest manuscripts that uh, archaeologists have found. It's as if uh, all this forgiveness stuff was, was a bit too much to the earliest earliest Christian editors who collected all these writings because, you know, no one in their right mind could imagine a Messiah letting his killers off the hook. But again, in light of Easter, we know that Jesus' death in some mysterious way turns out to be how God forgives humanity. And so his compassion His forgiveness on the cross foreshadows, prefigures divine mercy. And then finally, there's a third power that Jesus shows, and it's maybe the most unexpected one of all. It's that he shares both his spiritual power 
and his mission with those of us who follow him. He shares. Doesn't take all the glory for himself. You know, it's interesting that the words patience and passion both come from the same Latin word, patientia. It means to suffer, to endure. So when we speak of the passion of Christ, we remember the suffering that he endures on his way to and then on the cross. And I want to be clear here, because a lot of people get this wrong when they think of endurance or long-suffering. There are certainly times in life when we are not called to patiently endure or look the other way in the face of pure evil or uh, uh, terrible injustice or senseless suffering, no. But there are times, a whole lot of times, when we are called to be patient. When we bear with someone who's being difficult or endure some pain ourselves rather than inflict it on somebody else, that is when we are in some small way able to embrace, to share the passionate power of Jesus. The Indian Christian mystic Ethnak Ishwaran wrote this, Each one of us can bear a little self-denial. And with practice, our shoulders can grow broad enough to carry some of the burden of those we love. In this way, by practicing mercy through our lives, we take upon ourselves some of Jesus' burden and his power. You may have heard the old story of what happens after Jesus ascends up to heaven. The story is told in uh, Luke's Gospel. But this story, nobody knows where this story comes from, probably the Middle Ages or something. But anyway, after his ascension, Jesus is met by the angel Gabriel who says, Master, those humans sure put you through a whole lot of agony. And Jesus says, they sure did. But, Gabriel says, at least they know how much you love them what you did. And Jesus says, not exactly. As of now, only a few people in Palestine have any idea what I did. And this confuses Gabriel. So the angel says, then how is the rest of the world going to know anything about your love? And Jesus says, well, I asked Peter and James and John and a few more of my friends to tell a bunch of people about what I did and what I said, and then to pass it on, and then you know, on and on and on through the ages, all everybody on earth is going to hear about it. So eventually, everyone will know that I was the Savior, sent by God. And Gabriel's still pretty skeptical because he knows a lot about, you know, human, the human propensity to, uh, to mess up and the lack of moral fiber that we have. And he says, but what if Peter and James and all the rest get tired? What if they forget? What if all these humans you're relying on screw up? What's your backup plan to save the world, Jesus? And Jesus smiles and says in reply, there is no backup plan. And then he just walks on. Well, you know, as you and I walk on together through this Holy Week, 
Some familiar feelings are bound to come up. They always do whenever you're getting ready for Easter. But this year, because of COVID and all sorts of other things, something, probably a whole lot of things, are going to be missing too. But one thing, one thing remains the same. And it's the instruction, no matter how many of your expectations get turned upside down, it's the teaching that Paul gives us in Philippians to have the same mind in you as in Christ Jesus. The same faithfulness, the same forgiveness, the same humble joy in sharing your life and your gifts with and on behalf of other people. It's not going to be easy all the time. I guarantee you, it's not always easy when you decide to follow the path of Jesus. But this week of all weeks, I invite you to give it a try. Practice. Practice having the same mind in you that Jesus had. You know, you can pick up your Bible, too. I invite you to do that. And read about what Jesus said and did that last week of his life. Imagine, if you can, that you're right there with him. You know, ask yourself, who else is there? What's it like? How do you feel? What do you do? And then, pay attention to what's going on in your own life right now. And think about how you can have the same mind as Jesus to discover the power of faithfulness, forgiveness, and communal love. Do that with the assurance that Easter is coming and prepare to receive and pass on the blessing of new life. In Jesus' name, amen.